Hey, this is Sydney McInnes with Q104, Kenora Online, located out of Kenora, Ontario. Today we are speaking with Jordan Cyril, a paramedic with Orange Air Ambulance Service, about his recent experience in Ukraine. After hearing the news of the first missile strikes in Ukraine back in February, Cyril, a former member of the British military who served time in Afghanistan, decided that he needed to offer his services to the Ukrainian people. He, alongside his friends from his service time, promptly went to the front lines to help. Now, listeners, today we we will be discussing matters that may be hard to listen to. Details of murder, sexual assault, and other heinous war crimes will be discussed, and because of that, discretion is advised. So thank you for joining me today, Jordan. Um, I know we talked a little bit last week, but can you just, uh, for the people who aren't aware, give me a little bit of a rundown on um, yourself, your backstory, your time in the military, your experience with medical uh, medical stuff, everything like that. Sure, yeah. So uh, my name is Jordan So. Uh, I'm currently an air ambulance paramedic for uh, Orange Air Ambulance based in Kenora. I'm sure you see our helicopter buzzing around the town quite often. Um, I've been up here for about sort of two and a half, almost three years now. Uh, prior to that, I was a paramedic in the UK for 10 years. Um, and at the same time, and previous to that, I was an army medic in the British Army with uh, several tours uh, around the Middle East and the rest of the world. So uh, me, due to the conflict that sort of happened in Ukraine, um, that sort of happened very quickly against sort of everyone's uh, expectations, uh, I think most people thought that what was happening there was not going to happen in the way that it did. For sure. Um, and unfortunately... Uh, it did, even though all the warning signs were there. I think most of the world sort of were very sort of positive, thinking, oh, okay, maybe it's just a show of force and, mm-hmm. you know, it will never happen. But uh, unfortunately, on the 24th, there was an invasion um, of a sovereign country in, in Europe. Um, so, you know, me and a team of guys sort of, sort of got together and decided that, uh, you know, enough was that and uh, we needed to go and do something more useful for sure um, on that side of things. So we sort of got together. Uh, myself and a bunch of ex-military guys that I've served with around the world from a mixture of uh, different places, Canadian forces, British Army, uh, even the U.S. military, along with some civilian um, specialist roles that we sort of uh, know through our time in our lives. We um, we sort of got together very haphazardly. Um, it was a quick email chain, and a quick text message chain to uh, a few people, and uh, what started as a bunch of like-minded individuals um, sort of on the same wavelength of saying, we need to go and help and see what we can do that's going to be useful to these people um, to a almost massive um, humanitarian medical mission, in essence, between the, what originally was eight of us that sort of spanned into, uh, I think, at our height, we had sort of 35 people under our sort of wing um, sure. of both international volunteers, uh, Ukrainians, and, you know, in several different medical locations set up long before any of the sort of NGOs and the world aid sort of ap- appeared. Um, you know, as you could imagine, the onslaught and the rapidness of the initial invasion um, into just the Ukrainian general um, infrastructure was, you know, quite catastrophic. So if you imagine most of your hospitals have been sort of now without power for a couple of days, there's been severe bombings, most of your services are, are destroyed. Um, you know, any country would have trouble trying to sort of bounce back from that. For sure. Um, you know, and if you imagine, you know, a hospital that isn't just uh, sort of designed for treating warfare casualties, you've got every other casualty that you would have in there normally. So, you know, the generally sick, you know, the elderly, you know, pediatric patients, people with cancer, any sort of specialist roles, and then just general people that turn up to the emergency department. As we as we all know, you know, Lake of the Woods is under enough stress. So could you imagine if we threw a conflict in on that as well? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> we, would, we would fall over very quickly, and we like to think of ourselves as a very resilient country. So, you know, for them, it was incredibly uh, difficult. Um, so this initial... Um, 
sort of medical surge, as we called it, to help them was, was very welcomed by them. Okay. And so you told me now that you were on a night shift one night when uh, the war broke. Well, I shouldn't say broke out. Conflict started back in 2014. But when, when what we know now broke out back in February of this year. And can you just kind of walk through, you know, what were you thinking, the thoughts that went through your head? And from the moment that you had that first thought, how long did it take to get to Ukraine? Yeah, so um, we've sort of watched it unfold for a couple of days beforehand. You know, we had all the news and the warning of the troop movements and the build-up on, you know, the, the, the sort of Russian borders, uh, Belarus and, you know, the the Black Sea, Crimea. Um, so, you know, I'm a bit of a sort of history geek into a lot of sort of uh, conflict management and stuff like that. So, you know, stuff from the Second World War and sort of onwards to modern conflict. So, you know, you could see sort of the writing on the war and it was quite interesting to read a lot of the sort of blogs and sort of the higher level sort of uh, government stuff to say, you know, the impending signs are all there. But to watch the world sort of go, mm, everything is there for what's going to happen, but we don't think it's going to happen. We're just going to sort of play it by ear. And, I, you know, I can't imagine the uh, uncertainty of, like, you know, a lot of those G- Ukrainian citizens or even their government, you know, and President Zinke. Can you imagine just sitting at home going, is it going to happen or are they just playing a bluff? Yeah. Um, so I sat at home, uh, sorry, on, on night shift. I was at the base and we'd just come back from a, a, an inter-facility transfer. So we took an intensive care patient from uh, Kenora to a, a higher level care facility. And uh, we were sort of watching it on the sort of ping up on the phones as we sort of come back into signal range. And when we landed, we were watching what was happening. And it was sort of live unfolding as they were sort of um, uh, attacking uh, Snake Island, uh, you know, the border checkpoints. And, you know, no one could really believe that this was happening in front of us. Um, You know, and at the same time, I was getting messages from people all around the world, different time zones. Everyone's watching this sort of live unfold and you know apart from sort of the the uh, sort of first gulf war that most people will remember there's not really been a fully televised conflict um especially from like the outset so if you go back to the original sort of gulf war days and most people will probably remember watching it on cnn or or the news channels of all the the missile strikes in baghdad and all the other stuff that's going on you know so we actually watched this unfold and you know i felt sort of very uneasy about it thinking well you know this is the this could this be the beginning of the end in essence, right? So majority of my military career when I joined the army at sort of 16 and a half straight from school, um, you know, it was very much, a, you know, you're trained to fight this massive Russian horde that's going to come through Europe and wipe everyone out. Um, and that was pretty much most of what we call NATO's doctrine in the time. So to fast forward sort of 25, 30 years and then look at the fact of going and then you know, I'm stood in Ukraine and I'm looking at the very... Uh, vehicles and, and personnel and, and doctrine that you know I was originally trained on was was very surreal on those two things. But coming back to the whole um, conflict starting, I, I was very sort of uneasy. I felt very sort of uh, helpless in essence to watch it unfold, knowing the destruction that was going to happen on 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 the sort of level that it has. And you know I think the the civilian deaths, for example, and then potential war crimes and everything else that's happened. You know, it's well surpassed anything that any of us probably thought was going to happen, especially because none of that sort of level of violence happened in the sort of conflicted region of the Donbass and Ladanx or Crimea. Um, But, you know, now you're going into someone's sort of sovereign territory, they're going to defend it a lot, you know, more stundant, right? So I I felt very uneasy. Um, Lots of messages were exchanged between each other, and it was quite welcoming to see that, you know, a lot of the gentlemen and the guys and girls that I'd worked with through many years ago all had the same mindset everyone was on the same mindset of 
okay, this isn't acceptable in, in, in most eyes, so we've got to go and see what we can do together. Um, and thus sort of the plan sort of rolled very quickly. Within, I would say, six hours, the preliminary team was pretty much ready. Uh, most people had decided um, that they were happy to go and what we're doing. We didn't exactly have a set mission plan or, or sort of objective at that point. Um, you know, and it wasn't until sort of the next day and the next sort of 24, 48 hours that I was able to get good contacts with, you know, my old co-workers in the UK and around the world in order to try and organize some of the logistical elements of stuff. So, you know, it's quite happy for people to donate us ambulances and equipment and everything in Canada. Uh, but we're a considerable distance away from uh, Central and Eastern Europe, sure. uh, you know, and trying to move equipment that distance is just unfeasible, really, unless uh, somebody wants to give us a Skylift plane, which wasn't going to happen. <laughs> um, so the plan was to get everything we needed to in England. Um, you know, luckily, I worked in the ambulance service there for an extended period of time and still had quite a lot of contacts there. So we were managed to uh, secure um, a donated frontline ambulance. Um, from uh, an ambulance service there, fully kitted, um, straight off the front line um, within hours. You know, they were very, very supportive of it um, on that sort of thing. And then subsequently from them, they went out and put their feelers out. Then we were getting extra equipment from children's hospitals, uh, hospitals in general, volunteer practices, uh, GP surgeries, groups of organization um you know because they were amazed at oh people are doing this already and we're talking you know 48 hours since this started um as that sort of rolled a little bit further and we started doing uh we're like well we need to sort of get some funding or something for this you know um so we started a little bit of crowdfunding as such for um vehicles equipment and fuel more importantly um and subsequently by the end of that sort of funding stream we we sort of had enough money and resources to to bring um four fully equipped uh, what we call emergency ambulances so the same sort of thing you would see driving around here with uh, northwest ems for example just a different style obviously in europe our vehicles are a little bit different to sort of what you have here uh, and we also managed to get uh two what we call rapid response vehicles which are um smaller sort of suv type car vehicles estate cars that are used primarily to bring a solo paramedic with advanced life support to to a scene so we had two of them sort of uh, donate uh, donated slash bought uh, some degree um filled with equipment ready to sort of bring over there as well uh, subsequently at the same time i was contacted by a uh, group of like-minded individuals in france who were trying to do the same thing but obviously in france and uh, between us, uh, you know, we managed to get another two sort of French ambulances sorted and brought to um, Warsaw for them. Um, there's a volunteer group in Ukraine called the Hospitalis, and they've been sort of operating since early sort of 2012. And uh, they're all volunteer medical personnel that volunteer to work in the conflict zone. So majority of the time since sort of 2012 and the sort of 2014 conflict onwards, they've been working in the east of the country around sort of Donbass and Ladansk. And um, they're providing the only ambulance service in the conflicted zones. So the national ambulance service and the civilian services aren't really in a place to operate in the conflict zones, as I'm sure you can imagine, um, for obvious sort of reasons on that. Um, and so we had some good communications with them and they were pretty desperate for resources as well. And then obviously, um, you know, through several contacts uh, through the military and, and people I know that worked in Brussels and the UN uh, had started putting us out into contact with the, the sort of bigger picture guys. So we got in contact with people in the Ukrainian Ministry of Health, their version of the civil defense and their sort of national ambulance service as they sort of have a, a big organizations that cover the whole country so much like uh, ontario has the ministry of health and the emergency services board they're sort of the same thing split into regional assets so if you imagine sort of like municipalities that we for have sure here 
Um, so from that, obviously, we, we created a pretty much of a robust plan to bring equipment and vehicles and resources to um, two set sort of locations. We started to drive to Europe once everything was together, um, and the team of us sort of rotated in terms. It was quite entertaining because a lot of the vehicles are manual or stick shift, which obviously is something that most Canadians don't really have a good understanding sure. of using. So to suddenly give some of my uh, some of my close friends like, well, here's a seven and a half ton vehicle full of equipment. <laughs> oh, and it's manual, by the way. And they just were like, oh, okay. So we had a little bit of training to, to, <laughs> so they didn't destroy clutches on the way there. Um, it's a, in essence, if you drive from where we were in Bristol all the way to um, Lviv, the town in Ukraine, it's, if you don't stop, it, it should take you sort of around 21, 22 hours. So kind of like driving from Toronto to Kenora in For a sure. sense. Yeah. Um, most people can do that in a single running, but obviously you have to go on a ferry. You know, there's, you've got to traverse several European borders in essence to, to sort of get across it. So um, that wasn't a feasible thing to do it in a one uh, stunt. Uh, so that was broken down into sort of three days in essence to really get there. Mm-hmm. Um, so in total, five days from this happening um, to us really being in uh, the city of Kiev. Uh, and providing care and support to the the population, like five days from like your first thought. Five days from the first thought, wow, we were on the ground, ready to go. Correct, quick. Um, so you know, it was it was very interesting because when we left the UK, it was very much a um, go radio silence on a lot of stuff because there was obviously lots of things going on. Um, when we got to Ukraine and we we met up with our representatives, they were very much the same of, hey, European phones off. SIM cards, batteries out away. Um, and we had Ukrainian phones given to us um, with sort of like non-descriptive numbers. So just like the standard disposable phone or pay-as-you-go phone you would get from any sort of a T-Bay or Bell. Um, purely because the Russian electronic warfare was actually really good and would track European phones. So um, there was a lot of obviously hype about this international legion and all the volunteers going to fight from around the world. And... Um, you know, there was a rocket attack on their training outpost, which is just north of Lviv. And um, pretty much all of that was down to the fact that lunatics all were there with their phones on Snapchat, Instagram, look at me in my yeah. conflict zone. And as you know, you know, you can't hide from data. No. It wasn't very hard for the Russians to pinpoint really where that was. And then whack, you know, and then there was a mass casualty sort of incident sort of there because of that. You know? mm-hmm. And it's, it's really intensive to say to people like, yeah, it's quite important to, you know, look after your security should we say on that side of things so you know big thing on that for for us again was was security um very different to obviously any of the conflicts we've dealt with in the past sort of like iraq afghanistan you don't really have your phone with you when you're over there anyway but (laughs) you know electronic warfare was still something to be aware of but it was more of a um propaganda tool rather than actually a tool used for direction finding in essence and the russians were pretty good at it like you know they have they had the technology for most of it um on that sort of thing. So once we were in, uh, once we were in Lviv, you know, a special police unit that we were in contact with sort of escorted us to uh, the capital, and that is about an eight-hour drive on on a good day. Um, there is a central highway that runs pretty much all the way through uh, Ukraine. It's a big four-lane highway, just like you would uh, the 400 series in the south. Um, but obviously, it's partially destroyed. There's barricades. It's blocked, sure. you know, to stop obviously people yeah. just being able to surge through the country. So you know, we were driving at sort of 70 to 80 miles an hour across most of Ukraine <laughs> in, um, you know, dirt roads to tarmac roads to bridges and everything. It was a bit of a nightmare to sort of get there, um, you know, but it was pretty empty, as you, as you can imagine, heading into the country. But coming out, obviously, was was pretty busy for people trying to escape. So, 
Um, we get to give them, you know, several rocket attacks on the way there and indirect fire and stuff to us. Um, just in general, is that the Russians obviously advance trying to shell major supply routes or military movement. There's obviously everyone sharing the same roads, right? Mm-hmm. Military, civilian, um, anyone trying to help. So we we get to Kiev, um, and it's I've never been there before in my life uh, or anything like that, and it looks just like downtown Toronto. <laughs> They're all big skyscrapers. Uh, it's very westernized. Uh, you know, um, there's coffee shops. There's normal stuff that we would find in any other place in town, including McDonald's. Mm-hmm. You know, the Golden Arches are pretty much everywhere. But, um, <laughs> you know, to see them sort of burning freely um, yeah. and watching buildings on fire and jets dogfighting above us and, you know, rockets coming in. And, you know, it was a very surreal experience. And, you know, the only real way to sort of put that is it's like a movie or video game. I think some of the younger people would sort of look, oh, it was probably like Call of Duty. And you know, it was a little bit like the whole uh, modern warfare style of stuff because it was very bizarre, like, you know, a very westernized city burning, um, you know, modern conflict of jets dogfighting above you, uh, you know, tracer fire going into the sky and rockets coming in. You know, a very surreal, this eerie air raid siren constantly going off. Uh, you know, stuff that I've never really heard in, in my lifetime, you know, you know, my parents would have heard some of the air raid sirens during the Cold War sort of era of stuff in the UK as practice and stuff. But, you know, to to live it was very different. Um, just seeing the sort of the, the look on a lot of the general civilian faces when they saw us come in was, you know, one of sort of despair and sort of hope at the same time, knowing that, you know, someone's come to help all of our vehicles. Um, were luminous, like yellow, because all of our emergency vehicles are bright yellow. Um, they're sort of Battenberg and marked. We have blue emergency lights and red crosses now posted on them. Uh, but you could tell, obviously, they were um, from England, sort of mm-hmm. marks. And we had sort of Ukrainian English flags on them as well. So people could, you know, see where we were, were from um, and sort of in a hope that we wouldn't be targeted in essence. But oh, as we go later into this, it was pointless. Um, but uh, <laughs> the fact of the matter is, you know, the relief on some people's faces were, was genuine. And, you know, when we got to the secure area that we were sort of um, held up in overnight, you know, bombs are falling and we're, we've got these vehicles undercover now and, you know, everything's sort of going off. And the, the first thing the Ukrainian guy said to us is like, oh, you've had a long drive. We should get you something to eat. Wow. <laughs> but, you know, these people just all they wanted to do was make sure we were okay and that we've got everything that we needed but you know to sit there and be like would would you like us to go and help with what's going on they're like oh what you know you guys need to rest like you've been very busy like you know Mm -hmm. we don't want to we don't want to push you because you know they they ultimately were still trying to feel us out on to whether or not we were um you know good genuine people to help them or were we there for some ulterior motive or or anything else yeah and i mean i imagine so early on the conflict that like no one really knew what was up no one really knew anything there was a lot of um little skirmishes sort of going on in kiev because there was a lot of sort of um uh, what they would call sort of undercover operations in essence right there'd be plainclothes people from you know the russian military or the the fsb whatever i guess so um coming into kiev trying to sort of mingle in so they can do some reconnaissance and look around and there was a lot of sort of um police and sort of military operations going on all around kiev and you know and i wouldn't say that they didn't have control of the situation i think the fact is that you know nobody really knew what was sort of going on mm-hmm. um, the russian uh, were the russian army is literally banging at the doors like kilometers away um you know the city is in pretty much turmoil as they're trying to defend it and it really was all hands to the pump in essence like mm-hmm. every anyone aged sort of 18 to 60 was conscripted um in essence or martial law was obviously in place in that in that country and um i didn't see anyone that was against any of that 
everyone was very patriotic and very much, you know, well, this is my city, you know, I'm defending my city. And, and you know, whether it was filling sandbags or, uh, you know, moving concrete barricades or even building concrete and um, you sort of tank traps um, or what they call hedgehogs by people welding metal together to stop vehicles coming through. It was, it was very interesting, especially in the day, the amount of work going on from just general people, you know, city buses turned into roadblocks, you know, yeah. tires deflated, rolled over, put on spikes, filled with concrete, you know, all this stuff that you look at and just think, it's going to take years to fix this. And it's yeah. going to be very expensive. Like, you know, Kenora has like one bus. <laughs> Couldn't so, imagine, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, the, us going, oh, we need to block downtown. Let's bring the only bus we have. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. So <laughs> it was a very different experience being there on, on that side of thing and, and very quickly they got to trust us and understood that we were we were there to help and when they saw that you know we'd brought tons of equipment not just vehicles and sort of gone here's the keys good luck we're out um they were absolutely amazed at, at sort of our resilience and, and us to help us and they were like you know you know it's really dangerous here we're like oh, yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> well, yeah i get it i thought it wasn't going to be a holiday um you know and some of us are probably sitting there and go you're a maniac for going there like you know because there is no plan to get anyone out like mm-hmm. you know, we we're all under very we we're under no illusions that you know if anything went wrong there you're on your own we're on our own and we're probably staying there yeah um you know and and yeah and Death is a, a big, interesting thing for a lot of people. And, you know, I, I've been in enough conflict around the world that, you know, I'm quite happy to say I'm not a war junkie, but morally, when the right thing needs to be done, I'm quite happy to sort of go out on a limb and say, well, let's go do the right, mm-hmm. right thing um, on that side of things. So, you know, we were under no impressions that if we couldn't get ourselves out, then there was no real help for anyone. So, mm-hmm. um and that's just a reality of sort of anything in the world. Like, you know, you can say the same thing about people going to sort of help in Haiti or whatever, right? Like, mm-hmm. You know, it's a different kind of risk there as it is to sort of Ukraine as it is to, you know, going hiking in the in the bush up here. So, um, you know, we were under no illusions of that. Um, we did all have um, ballistic armor, helmets and other stuff like that. Um, none of us carried uh, firearms um, for the exact reason of, you know, we weren't there to um, provide conflict sort of support or in essence, we weren't there to fight. Um, we were there sort of to provide provide medical aid sort of only and logistical specialist support through uh, my team um, and you know within sort of say six to 12 hours of sort of being in Kiev we were already providing training we were already setting up um, our medical facilities and and training people to respond uh, on the ambulances to to the needs of the the sort of town um, we sort of pushed up to the northeast of the city uh, on that sort of I guess suburb area is what you would call it or, or sort of like part of the city and uh, the hospital had been destroyed there um, most of the doctors and nurses had either been removed to another location or, or had been injured um, so we were just sort of tasked can you guys help us set up sort of a clinic of some description mm-hmm. no problem absolutely um, so you know anyone who's had any time in the military understands that you know we're very used to doing everything on a small scale usually intense in the middle of nowhere and being fully sort of self-sufficient especially when it comes to medical side of things so we sort of followed our own sort of doctrine of creating this sort of role one, what the military called role one facility, which is sort of initial trauma and stabilization. So think of a, an emergency department that only has sort of like two to five beds mm-hmm. um, that has the ability to fix immediate life-threatening problems. And then the whole idea is that person is then evacuated to a higher level of care um, further down the evacuation chain. So we started to do that for them um, in what was a sort of community and dental health clinic. So pretty much like the Patterson Centre um, <laughs> was pretty much what we used. Um, it was already bombed. Um, it had intermittent power. Um, we didn't have any running water originally um, in the facility, um, but the guys uh, and girls there had 
transferred water, they'd built pipes, they'd done everything to try and fix what they could, they diverted power to try and get power on and off. Um, and we did create an almost like this giant battery bank where at night we could have some power. Um, and then in the day we sort of just sort of went without it, um, in essence, until the city could get the grid sort of back in, in working. So we built this five bed sort of unit. Um, that very quickly became overrun with casualties. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had to sort of expand what we had. Um, and we only sort of had a few ambulances at this point as well. So, you know, and, and the general hospitals were also overloaded with, with sort of patients as well. And they were desperately trying to evacuate the general medical and intensive care level patients sort of out to Poland, um, you know, and, and so they could free up their capacity in essence. So we had this sort of horrendous sort of uh, issue of, We'll now have more patients than we can really deal with. Um, so pretty much every time that we ha- there was a rocket attack or or a bombing or a, or a skirmish in, in the area we were in, pretty much ended up being a mass casualty sort of situation. So, um, you know, we, we treated, in essence, I think by the last close, something like 75, 77 patients was the last tally on the um, on the board mm-hmm. um, of sort of what going on. And like I said, that was a mixture of uh, male, female adults, um, you know, male, female children, um, and also, like you know, some pediatrics. We delivered one baby while we were there as well, which was uh, which was quite nice. It was a bit of a relief to the uh, experience, to the despair that was sort of going on there. And there was a lot of joy from sort of the medical staff that we had there, and, and the general population that was still sort of in and out, and even to the wounded to some degree. You know, so these were quite severe sort of um, traumatic injuries these people were having. You know, amputations of legs and arms, severe blast injuries. You know, lots of shrapnel. Um, you know, eye and head injuries. So. You know, things that we don't really see in our day-to-day things here, especially up in, in sort of Kenora, we're sort of relatively secure from some of the bigger problems that, that Canada sort of faces. But, you know, to see the level of destruction on what would essentially be someone's apartment building was was pretty upsetting. Um, you know, luckily, uh, myself and my team were all relatively quite highly trained in the scheme of things you know orange is very good at training people in working in austere environments because majority of our work is obviously remote and first nation communities and um, have very limited resources anyway so um you know it wasn't too difficult for us to sort of just get back into the swing of things and then pass that information on to training um my team and other people in, in how to do things to, the way that we like to do it uh, and work very well you know the ukrainians that we had working with us um you know they didn't work for us we worked for them and that's the way i you know we always said it to people is like you know oh well you know do they work for you it's like no 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 we work for them it's their country it's their rules it's their game you know we're here to assist them they don't need us to hold their hand they just need us to help them with some logistical aspects maybe a little bit of training and some clinical support on that side of thing they certainly don't need hand-holding these people for they're sure. very resilient for you sure. know? Um, and anyone who thinks it's some sort of backwards third world country is very wrong um on that side of things so you know, the dentist, uh, the dental hygienists and stuff we had working with us that were, you know, a week before doing scale and polishes on people were now um, putting on tourniquets, drawing blood, administering blood for us, mixing up sort of intensive care level drugs that they would never have dealt with in their career at all. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and they learned very quickly and they were very dedicated to, to their role. Um, you know, so what was almost like a private dental clinic became sort of the go-to uh, medical facility for that area. And we had a couple of sort of general nurses or registered nurses um, and some community team members as well and uh, uh, sort of 
a version of midwife. I was still not really sure if she was like a midwife or a doula or mm-hmm. what. I was, she could deliver a baby. That was what really <laughs> mattered, um, you know, um, on that side of things. As I'm sure most paramedics out there are like, oh, yeah, delivering babies is good, but everyone hates doing it because of the potential risk, yeah. especially yeah. in a non-controlled environment of a, a nice hospital clinic or a nice setting somewhere. So, you know, trying to deliver a baby while there's bombs going off everywhere around you was you know, it was a very surreal experience, but also very humbling at the, the sort of same time. Well, so, and, and that's the thing is life doesn't stop just because there's a war. It certainly doesn't, you know. And, and, you know, we weren't always dealing with trauma patients. We would have sort of the elderly come in as well. Like, you know, well, they've now had no cardiac medications for a week. So now they're suffering the effects of, you know, their heart failure is coming up or their, you know, their um, regurgitating valve is causing them a problem because they've got no warfarin left or anything. We're, mm-hmm. now anti, we're now having issues with anticoagulation. So, you know, it was a lot more of a bigger, wider spread medical thing. And, you know, I think a lot of people forget that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not all um, bombs, bullets and, and bandages and, and looking all super cool and trying to do all the Gucci stuff. It certainly isn't. You know, a lot of it is um, back to primary health care in essence, you know, and, you know, helping people with their sort of general medical concerns and, and upsets and other bits and pieces like like that. Um, you know, which most paramedics have a pretty broad understanding of, but we don't really have the ongoing training or resources to really deal with, yeah. with a lot of that sort of stuff. So, you know, um, luckily, you know, we had quite a good contact um, through sort of um, a secure app where you could FaceTime in essence. Mm-hmm. Um, and we could speak to doctors and, and people around the world that could sort of help. Uh, and there was a big international community of volunteer sort of doctors and specialities, a um, bit like telehealth here. You basically went online, you told them what you needed, and then someone with that speciality in your language would appear. And mm-hmm. you would have that discussion with them and show them the patient what's going on. And they would advise you sort of the best option of what resources you had to try and fix that. Um, and that was really helpful um, on that side of things. So it was pretty much telehealth that we have or the on OTN network um, that many people have in northern communities here. But just on my phone, um, you know, in a, in a secure area, in essence, to be able to do that. Um, and it was very interesting that the medical international community came together incredibly quickly um, to sort of try and help, especially Poland. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the history of Poland and the Soviet Union isn't great anyway. Um, and you'll be hard pressed to find a poll that um, would ever want the Russians at their door again or, or even occupation by them. So, you know, Poland has been an incredibly grateful nation um, for taking in millions of refugees. They're also taking a majority of the wounded um, that are being evacuated out of Ukraine. Um, you know, which can't be said for a lot of other places in, in the world. So, you know, fair play to uh, to Poland for, for that. So back to our little sort of clinic of things, you know, the, the, the staff there were just phenomenal for what we had. We had a lovely old Soviet doctor appear, um, mm-hmm. you know, um, <laughs> Oleg, bless him. And he's, I think he was late 70s. He, he himself didn't really know how old he was, bless him. <laughs> and he was quite, and he was a very unique character. He was very much this... If you imagine what uh, 1980s sort of Soviet Union was like, he was the pinnacle of it. Wow. You know, even at his age, he still chain smoked constantly and it didn't <laughs> seem to affect him at all, which was quite entertaining. But, um, you know, he appeared one day and he had, you know, he had a lovely pair of uh, slacks on. He polished his shoes. He had his original um, sort of, I guess, um, what would have been his military medical tunic, in essence, from when he was a doctor in the Soviet Union. Yeah. Um, and his little brown leather sash uh, and his little brown bag and he turned up one day bless him and he says you know oh, i understand this is now a, a hospital and uh, you know 
he spoke relatively good English. It wasn't great um, between us. So, so, you know, talking with the Ukrainians and doing a bit of translating between us, you know, he says, oh, I, I'm, you know, I used to be a doctor, you know, I've been retired for a long time, but, you know, is there anything I can do to help? He's like, you know, if not, I've brought my old uh, medical bag, maybe that would be of use to people, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and he was a fantastic guy. And after getting to know him after sort of a couple of days, he, he was, you know, he'd make you laugh and was teaching you stuff. He was brilliant with children, was fantastic with them. And, you know, even though he admits that he hasn't practiced medicine for a very, very long time, he was very useful, you mm-hmm. know, and very much on the wall. You know, he asked questions and then he would go away and he would practice stuff and, you know, he... He um, openly admitted he couldn't suture anymore because he could barely see, so which was which was good. And he knew his limitations, but his knowledge was was still there when you discuss uh, sure. a patient with him. Even if he couldn't really see them, he would come up with ideas or potential ways of fixing X, Y, Z. And it was really interesting to see. And you know, the interesting thing about this is Oleg was a, is a Russian. He was born in Russia. He's always been Russian, but he's lived in Ukraine for you know sort of fifty plus years of his life. Um, and you know, he was. He was explaining as a Russian how how horrid he felt of what was going on, um, you know, and how upset he was that the Russian population were sort of like probably blissfully unaware of sort of what is actually happening there uh, through censorship and media control. And, you know, it was very interesting to speak to someone that, you know, lived and breathed the Soviet Union. And he said, like, you know, I believed in everything the Soviet Union was telling me in that time during, you know, during that time. And he says, you know, and then when it collapsed, he's like, like the world opened up and he was like, I was amazed at, at the lies and deception and everything else that's sort of going on. Um, you know, and he stayed in Ukraine mm-hmm. for that entire time. So, you know, he classes himself as Ukrainian, even mm-hmm. though he was born in Russia and he is, a, he, he says, you know, I unfortunately I am a Russian, but he's like, I'm Ukrainian. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and there's no hatred between the Ukrainians and this guy or other Russians that live in Ukraine that call themselves Ukrainians. Mm -hmm. There's no hatred at all, zero. Um, And it was very interesting to see that an entire country has put aside its uh, political, personal, religious, financial, social status rules aside. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, uh, a millionaire or you're somebody that's just making it uh, ends meet. Mm-hmm. As far as they're concerned, you're all on the same page and everyone's defending their country. Um, yeah. And it was very, very heartwarming to see that, um, you know, and just the sort of like working with each other. Because at the end of the day, if they didn't, they would be overrun and all be killed. And they understand yeah. that, you know, the, the Russians aren't pulling any punches when it comes to this. So um, it was quite a sad uh, environment to sort of be in to watch sort of like one minute it would be sort of despair other times we'd have a little bit of happiness and then sort of back to the reality of you know people would stand outside and look at all the bomb buildings and everything and just think somebody's home or like you know we'd try and go through some of the wreckage to find stuff for people or whatnot mm-hmm. you know, it was was pretty horrific so um but in terms of, of everyone coming together which just unfounded the support network that they created for themselves was was phenomenal. You know, whether they were hiding in bomb shelters in the subway or they were in the basement of the hospital, you know, the singing, the cheering, the sort of like being together as a community. Uplifting. Was sort of, oh, it's phenomenal. Like I've never experienced anything like that um, in my life. And, and the thanks and just general support from them to us when they saw us, you know, because mm-hmm. even though they're, they're very you know, European white people, and, you know, they look at us and we do look a little bit different compared to what they are. You know, most of us are quite taller than, <laughs> than them. Um, and they would look at us and they'd be like, ah, oh, the Canadians are here. And, you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, they, they had 
genuine sort of thanks and love for us, you know, and the the terminology of like, you know, friends for life, I think it's sort of a little bit corny, but you know, these people would if you know, in ten years time if I if I call them up or turn up at their door, they would they would mm-hmm. welcome you with open arms and you know, it's it's very humbling to see that and you know, they, they couldn't do enough to look after us. They mm-hmm. were only concerned about our safety. Um, you know, there was a period of time where we had very limited food um, in the whole sort of country, especially where we were. Um, you know, they were cutting mold out of bread and, and trying to find vegetables that weren't destroyed or whatever and trying to make. And you could tell that the, the borscht soup was getting watered down each day as it sort of <laughs> yeah. as it went on because the lack of supply sort of getting through and, you know, they would always make sure that we had the option to be fed first mm-hmm. compared to everyone else. And, you know, initially we thought it was just very nice custom of them and we were eating. And then after a while we sort of figured it out of, oh, there are people here that aren't eating because they're giving us their food. Yeah. Um, you know, and it, and it didn't take long to sort of figure that out. And then, you know, to approach that subject with some of them, they, you know, they were a little bit offended when I said like, hey, you don't need to feed us. And they mm-hmm. were like, well, no, 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 we do. Like, look at all the stuff you're doing for us. And I'm like, well, this doesn't matter. Like, all of that equipment, all of that medical supplies, all of this training, all of our time, like, it's irrelevant. It doesn't, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't matter, man. Like, it's, for us, it's, it's just something we want to do. Like, you know, the cost of stuff, our, you know, money and whatnot. It's just money. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end of the day, like, you know, I said to them, I was like, it, it doesn't matter. You guys need to eat and your troops and the guys and the volunteers, like, defending the area need to eat i was like i can live if i don't eat for a couple of days like yeah. you know, um it's it's not uncommon but again in, in, in sort of the society we're in we're like oh no i eat like three or four times a day and i'm used to just if i want something i'll just get on the app and skip the dishes or i'll go to subway or mcdonald's or yeah supermarket or whatever right? like they didn't have that luxury obviously right now yeah um but yeah it was very humbling and sort of see like you know you guys don't have to feed us like mm-hmm. especially not first like you know we were treated as as, as royalty in essence to them you know they, mm-hmm. they went out of their way we always made sure we had armed protection they always made sure we had everything we needed like you know and it, it was very humbling to know that you know people were volunteering their time to basically bodyguard you mm-hmm. as you moved around the areas or do anything like that you know and it was it was very very heartening to to feel that sort of love from a, a community and you know the kids from the local school came in and they all made us um uh, little heart-shaped cookies with the oh, okay. ukrainian flag colors on them and stuff for us and the patients and stuff and you know they the kids would do like a little choir quartet and do a little sing for us and they would come in and make us um uh, little beaded ribbons and stuff like that to, for thanks and whatnot. And I think part of it well, you know, was to keep the kids' minds off of sort of what was going on as well because, you know, daily their their city is being bombed, you know, they're constantly hearing sirens, gunfire. And, you know, as, as a small child, that's it's not really what you want to deal with at the best of times, let alone um, it being constant for them. So, and, and, you know, unfortunately, some of them lost their lives through bombing and, and, and they lost their parents and whatnot. So, you know, we had some of the um, some of the kids that would, pretty much live in the hospital with us because they didn't have any parents left anymore and no home to go to. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they would basically come in and, you know, we made sort of a, a crash in essence with, uh, with what we could. And, you know, it wasn't the, the best crash. Like I don't have children, so I'm not the best with, <laughs> with, dealing with them, but you know, we, we built this sort of rapport with a lot of them and, and, you know, before the DA charities arrived and the Ukrainian services to be able to like, you know, support them properly. Yeah. Um, 
in essence but you know it was it was quite heartwarming to have like little kids come up and just want to follow you around all day and just hold on to your shirt as you moved around and stuff like. well and, and that's going to be something that sticks with them for the rest of their lives i mean obviously it's a horrible situation right now but the kindness that is also being shown is, is going to make such a difference and that's it you know this the, the human part of this is is massive like anyone can just turn up with money and equipment you mm-hmm. know, that's fine and you know yes to some degree that's all they need um but you know like you say that human aspect of it especially so early on in the conflict where you know there was all this talk about the world standing together to help ukraine but no one was really doing anything at that point like mm-hmm. you know i understand there's you know bureaucratic processes it takes longer to do stuff but you know the fact is that nobody else was there there was mm-hmm. us there was an, uh, an american surgical group working in the central kiev hospitals that were doing specialist surgeries uh, and there was another group north uh, uh, sort of northwest of kiev um doing training um, and trying to basically give people the skills so that if they were involved in a, a traumatic injury, that they could try and save someone's life, in essence. Um, and But that was purely what they were doing. They were doing that very well. They had a very good, robust supply chain, and they were doing it. And, you know, they were under, I would say, probably more fire than we were trying to trying to do that. Again, as all volunteers. Um, you know, you could tell almost everyone in the early days were all ex-military um, or sort of, sort of specialist role uh, personnel. There wasn't any of the sort of... Uh, you know, oh, I'm going to go and help. That that mm-hmm. did start to appear, but very quickly they were sort of either moved on or pushed back to a more sensible area of like, you know, you're you're going to become more of a problem here. I appreciate your willingness to want to help, but you know, you you are way out of your depth for for what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because there was a lot of people that just sort of turned up to Ukraine with no plan whatsoever, and just yeah. like, oh, I've come to help or I've come to fight, and you're like. Okay. Great so, intentions, but yeah, you know. What are you bringing to the party here? Oh, I don't know. I haven't got any plan. Oh, so you're just going to eat the food, sit around until you figure something out? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, you can't do that, man. Yeah. Like, that's not acceptable. Um, and that, that was happening quite a lot, unfortunately. We were having a lot of people sort of migrate their way to us because they saw the sort of Euro, the, the you know, UK ambulances or, or the, you know, they saw us or, or they heard in word of mouth of the training we were doing and they would sort of migrate to us. And I sit there and I'm like, how did you get all the way from the Polish border to keep <laughs> with zero plan and nothing? You know, yeah. Well, I just sort of asked for lifts and got equipment. And I was like... Very lucky. Yeah. And I said, have you brought anything for anyone here? Yeah. No. Okay. <laughs> just like, yeah, so, yeah. What, what you gonna do? What are you gonna do? Can you speak Ukrainian? <laughs> no. Can you speak Russian? No. Okay. Yeah. Cool. That's. I mean, yeah. I'll be honest, man. You're not gonna be much use to anyone here. Yeah. Um. You know, and people are like, oh, I can help you move boxes. I'm like, anyone can move a box, man. Like, I. They yeah. don't need another mouth to feed, in essence, right? So, it was it was difficult that sort of fine balance of trying to like say, you know, oh, it's awesome you're coming to help, but you know, like we don't, we can't accept you, and we can't sort of administrate you in essence yeah you know, um people turning up without helmets or, or body armor and stuff and it's just like well we actively go outside when it's still being shelled to go and rescue people you understand that right and they're mm-hmm. like oh well do i need all that stuff i was like yeah it would probably help because <laughs> the ukrainians haven't got enough for themselves i was like so you know yeah you, and if you get and again a lot of people didn't understand the concept of what happens if you get injured here oh i haven't thought of that 
I'm like, you guys haven't really thought of any plans. You're just going to come a massive burden on already stretched system in their country mm-hmm. um, because you have no plan. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a lot of this, like a Johnny Do-Gooder in essence uh, and whatnot that sort of appeared. And even the Ukrainians were like, who are these people? I'm like, I have no idea. <laughs> Not with like, me. Yeah, they were. They were like, are these guys with you? I'm like, no. And they're like, oh, okay. So what do you want to do with them? I was like, I have no idea. <laughs> Take them to the train station. I have no idea. What train out. Like. Yeah, just, you know, um, it was very interesting on that. And it's something that I've never really had to deal with in the past yeah. like i'm not a, you know i've never really worked for an ngo or a big aid group or or anything like that you know um you know most of the stuff i've done is either through the military or the government or, or you know through through uh, orange or, or the government agencies where you're just like well there's no one here that shouldn't be here mm-hmm. um but there was a lot of that in ukraine unfortunately a lot of that sort of like wanting to help but actually being a little bit more of a hindrance to, mm-hmm. the, to the system um you know there were some phenomenal people that appeared out of nowhere that were incredibly useful um you know an american guy turned up one day in a in a van and his uh, ukrainian driver got lost and they found us by pure chance um and he was he's from some church group in in southern america somewhere mm-hmm. and he had like four suitcases full of medical supplies and he went oh i was trying to get to this other place where they said they needed something and i was like okay and he's like oh my name's hadrian i'm from church of whatever it was and i was like oh okay. No, hello nice to meet you and he's just like you know you're a church organization i was like what well, no um but like, i was like I, i'm sure there's some churches around here though um and to be fair to him like all of the stuff he got he paid for himself he traveled uh here with his church sort of support and funding and whatnot and then was basically just running to kiev to, to locations that said they needed supplies and trying to get supplies to people so you know well before any of the big aid groups were organized and he was fantastic so he dropped four giant suitcases of supplies trauma bandages uh, tourniquets, you know, IV fluids, cannulas, uh, general dressing, surgical stuff, you know, and it was phenomenal. And, you know, by, by chance, this guy arrived. Um, and we had a lot of supplies with us, but, you know, after the amount of injuries we were having so quickly, that, that very quickly dwindled. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and he set up like a, a bit of an ad hoc supply chain. He says, well, I'll, I'll try and get someone back to you in two weeks. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Like, would you like to stay for dinner or anything like that? And mm-hmm. he's like, no, no, I'm going to go. And, you know, and he was phenomenal. And, you know, and, to his word, he did. He saw another supply drop in two weeks and, you know, that brought some uh, non-perishable food and stuff as well for the local area so they could actually uh, have something to eat and, you know, it's just like pasta and other bits and pieces like that. But, mm-hmm. you know, stuff that they hadn't had access to, right? There's no superstores open. Walmart's mm-hmm. not operating. Like, you, yeah, know, yeah. you know, you can't go to Safeway and, and go to the deli counter. Like, none well, of and I, I imagine everything they have is so rationed at this point. Completely, yeah. So, you know, not just the rationing, but most of it's been destroyed. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, there isn't really anywhere where you can get bulk supplies of food and you know the government was struggling to sort of deal with stuff as well um as much as anyone else trying to organize something on a smaller scale um but you know there was lots of little good help uh, from people on that side of things as well uh, we met a couple of the sort of international volunteers as such the people that had sort of gone to ukraine to to go and fight purely and join the join the military um you know and, and there's a, obviously a big debate about whether or not that should be allowed or not Mm -hmm. or whatever but everyone we met were they seemed relatively sort of straight edge and they were very keen to what they were doing Um, Mm -hmm. none of them seemed like a lunatic or any sort of like mass ptsd issues or anything Mm -hmm. like you know you're here because you can't cope (laughs) you know you just want to go out with a bang um but most people we met especially a lot of the canadians were 
Ukrainian Canadians. Mm-hmm. So most of them are probably, uh, and you know, the ones that we did meet, two of them had never been to Ukraine, but they were from Ukrainian families. And they said, well, it was just my right, my duty and my right to come back. And mm-hmm. I was like, I think it's very noble of people to sort of go, yep, I'm going to go do that. And then to only, you know, they join the International Legion, join the Ukrainian Army, and they, they earn the equivalent of something, like, I think it's like 400 US dollars a month. That's wow. it. And that's across most of the armed forces there. So most of these people are, you know, fighting for their country and their lives for out of pride know, yeah out of pride really or you know 750 800 bucks a, a month yeah um you know and and they're doing it very well and there's you know lots of volunteers sort of coming forward um but there's also a lot of people that get rejected from the ukrainian armed forces because they seem to think that they could just turn up get given a gun and, and sort of wonder the streets going to hunt or fight russians and you know they forgot that it's actually a very organized army you know mm-hmm. it was the third largest military in in sort of um europe for a long time um you know and yes the technology originally wasn't the same as sort of what we're sort of pushing towards them now but you know people thought oh we'll just turn up we'll get a gun and we'll go and fight i was like mm, you know things are rough but they're not that rough that they're just <laughs> yeah. going to give anyone a gun uh, you know especially a non-ukrainian uh, firearm right yeah. so um there was a lot of people that were rejected because they have to go through a very stringent process to join the um the international legions and uh, a lot of them were quite upset that they got rejected then they didn't really have any idea so they were just sort of bumbling around and, mm-hmm. especially in Lviv and stuff like that people didn't really have any idea what to do they're like well what do I do now it's like, huh, go home <laughs> like because yeah. you know you're not any use to, to be here but you know people had again had no plan they thought oh turn up they want me they want men with guns and I want to go and fight and you're just like you've got the wrong end yeah. of the stick here man <laughs> like it's very organised here it's not a conscripted army it's not like a you know just a random assortment of ragtag fighters well and this is this isn't a fun thing you know no and there's that element of war tourism i think was definitely happening sort of three week two to three weeks in you could tell it was starting to happen when Mm -hmm. the press started to arrive um and to be fair to a lot of the press they were very respectable to begin with Mm -hmm. um, on things so you know when when the siege of kiev sort of ended in essence and, and the ukrainians um either pushed Russians back or the Russians withdrew, whichever way you want to sort of look yeah. at that argument, um, especially when they were pushing back to sort of Belarus and they were uncovering sort of the towns of Bucha, Mashabov and Urpin and stuff, um, is, you know, we were sort of asked at that point, you know, now that the, most of the bombing in Kiev had calmed down, a lot of the aid charities were now working into into Kiev, like, you know, as it got safer, everyone sort of appeared, as, mm-hmm. as always, right? Um and uh, we sort of handed our clinic over to the Ukrainians to say, like, hey, you guys happy to run this now? Yeah, absolutely. We're, mm-hmm. we're all, you know, we had people trained, crew in the ambulances now. So, you know, we trained them to drive. We trained them to use the, the towel lift, the stretchers, how to correctly lift patients up off the floor with spinal injuries, how to, uh, you know, reduce fractures, how to secure fractures, how to how to stop catastrophic bleeding, how to ventilate someone, use a defibrillator, all this stuff, you know. So at this point now we had close to 25, almost 30 people that were quite capable of manning an emergency ambulance and going to a call mm-hmm. um, quite quite easily. Um, and, you know, before that time, they were just general people. Some were carpenters, some worked in car showrooms. Like, they were just mm-hmm. general population that went, hey, we'd like to learn the basics, which we we managed to do for them. And they, they did it incredibly well to continue to serve their environment. Um, you know, and, it, and it, the training obviously proved well because a lot of the casualties they were bringing back um, you know, were stabilized to the extent that normally they would have died in the field. Um, 
you know, for the simple use of unitourniquets, uh, hemostatic dressings and wound packing and, and putting proper dressings mm. on correct places, opening airways, positioning, you know, whereas before that wasn't happening, right? And, and you know, 80% of the casualties that would have survived uh, were unfortunately dying before they were getting to any treatment because of lack of equipment and understanding of basic sort of mm-hmm. uh, medical trauma, sort of first aid stuff. So, you know, they're nowhere near the level of sort of a paramedic you would get on sort of Northwest EMS here when you call 911. But, you know, they are incredibly capable of dealing with the general sort of um, big ticket items Mm -hmm. in in keeping someone alive. And, you know, they did that incredibly well. The medical team in the clinic worked tirelessly um, to ensure that everything was going on. They had a very robust evacuation plan back to some of the larger hospitals, you know, and they had everything in check. Like, you know, it it was a very proud moment for us to sort of sit there and go. And, you know, the first sort of um, big lots of patients that they dealt with and we sort of went went hands off and didn't really help them at all. And it was phenomenal to see them. Mm do everything from taking that person from the point of injury, you know, uh, doing some immediate life-saving care, moving them in the ambulance to the clinic, bringing them inside, and then that team sort of going to work, you know, and making sure that everything's done, giving the medications correctly, stabilising properly, and getting that person doing the vital signs and everything, and then making sure that patient's stable for transport was phenomenal to see them do that off their own back, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, like I say, they're dental hygienists, they're, you know, community nurses, like stuff that we wouldn't expect in our country these people to be able to do to that sort of level. Yeah. Um, so it's phenomenal to see and very proud to sort of see. And, and you know, I think going back to my organisation, um, especially back to Orange or even like, you know, the pre-hospital world in general sort of proves the fact that, you know, uh, the paramedicine role and, and, and paramedics are very broad in what they can sort of achieve when mm-hmm. they really get their minds to it and are allowed that ability to provide that training. And it was phenomenal to sort of um, to see that. And I was very proud at what happened and going back to Orange and telling them like, hey, sending them pictures and updates like these people are now being able to do this. And it was amazing for them, you know, especially our CEO and, and our big organization to see that and our doctors, especially our our um, transport medical physicians to see it and go, that's phenomenal that you guys managed to get this stuff working very quickly and whatnot. Um, so, you know, it was a good rapport on that. And obviously the Ukrainian society here were just amazed at, you know, the feedback and seeing what we were doing and stuff. And it was it was phenomenal. So once they were quite happy to sort of be self-sufficient, in essence, we, we were then sort of tasked that, hey, can you guys help with another area that's, that's struggling? Mm-hmm. And we're like, yeah, sure. So, um, you know, we took one of the vehicles uh, and one of the response cars up up to an area um, northeast, um, oh, sorry, northwest of, um, of Kiev for a bit. And uh, it was a very sort of still disputed area. The Russians were sort of withdrawing, but there was still sort of ongoing fighting going on there. Um, and as they pulled back and whatnot, then we started to uncover a lot of the the sort of terror that was left in their wake. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we were one of the first units in Dabucha, uh, you know, where all the all of the people were sort of, um, in essence, murdered. Um, you know, there was multiple bodies across the street everywhere, yeah. you know, men, women, even children. Um, it wasn't um, <clears throat> indiscriminate. Sorry, that's not the wrong term. Uh, it wasn't as if it was just accidental. Yeah. And they were just caught in crossfire and anything no. like that. It was, it was targeted attacks. You know, you'd see um, family... Family vehicles at the side of the road just riddled with bullet holes and, yeah. you know, bodies in there that have been there for sort of a week or two weeks before anyone's been able to get there to sort of at least give them some sort of dignified rest. Um, you know, so we spend a lot of our time um, being escorted or working with the local police at this point now because most of the National Army had been able to push them away. So now it was back to a sort of a civilian sort of role, in, mm-hmm. you know, between the police um, was going around and doing sort of a little bit of body recovery in essence and trying to find where... 
uh, if anyone's still there that needs help or anyone's deceased, you know, can we start, you know, putting them in body bags and making sure they're collected yeah. with dignity and stuff, you know, you just, um, you know, some of the pictures that, you know, you saw, obviously, if some of the, the vehicles all shot up, um, you know, there's, there's whole families sometimes in, inside these vehicles that have tried to escape, but, you know, for whatever reason has been targeted and, and sort of killed was they try to escape. And it was very indiscriminate when it comes to that sort of stuff. Um, same as inside a lot of the, the town, um, even in Irpin to some degree, like, you know, there's trails of blood into apartment buildings where people have been wounded in the street in the initial invasion. They've tried to get home and they've sort of, they've desperately called for help and, you know, nobody, nobody's come mm-hmm. because no one's able to get there. Or there's, you know, there is no ambulance service left anymore. Or there's no police to come and help you. You know, the army can't, can't fight and, you know, and now you're under Russian occupation and no one's coming to help you. Yeah. Um, you know, and unfortunately that's it. And the hospital, for example, in Irpin was just destroyed. Um, you know, the whole outside was blasted to pieces. Uh, the doctors and nurses and the medics that were still there were desperately trying to keep it running. Um, and even under sort of Russian occupation, they were saying, like, you know, they came in, they beat us every single day, they stole all of our equipment. Um, we weren't allowed to treat certain people. You know, they said it was just uh, horrific. But, mm-hmm. you know, these guys and girls uh, stayed at their post when it was all falling apart. They could have easily left and left all their wounded personnel there, but they didn't. They went we're, we're going to stay uh, and you know and some of them unfortunately felt the wrath of some of the Russian forces because of that mm-hmm. you, know, um, you know there was some reports of you know even the wounded being killed in their beds by the, the forces sort of coming through so you know and these are first had accounts from medical professionals that we were chatting to so I don't disagree yeah. that that probably didn't happen yeah. uh, you know there's no reason for any of them to lie and you could see just by sort of looking in their eyes and stuff like they were just completely wiped mm-hmm. you know and so to see someone else coming in to help them again was was you know very uplifting for them you know even if we were there for a short period of time we could help remove some of those abilities and some of those tasks that they still had to do like you know Mm -hmm. people in the street that were still sort of dying and decaying and stuff so you know it was it was a bit emotional on that side of things especially with the just the level of violence seen in that town and the destruction and as we know now like you know Bucha is just the tip of the iceberg of some of the stuff that's happened in that country and you look at Mariupol and, and a lot of the east of the country you know that m- was the first mass grave in essence that was found mm-hmm. uh, and I think now we're up to over sort of 1500 bodies now mm-hmm. you know when we were there we you know when we left that sort of area we were up to sort of 450 465 now we're over 1500 which is just unimaginable and it is right and you know and i think some people here you know we were discussing this the other day and it's very much like a lot of the unmarked graves that are now being found in our sort of first nation communities of like you know these atrocities happened we need to look into it and we need to deal with it but sure. again most of the people are just like well maybe we'll get around to it or do like a token effort of it it's yeah. very difficult right i think and it's a bit sad that you know it's still sort of going on. It's almost like a genocidal thing. And, and uh, I'm very much in the mindset of understanding from being on the ground there is that the Russian intent was to pretty much remove the Ukrainian identity. So mm-hmm. very much like the Second World War and Hitler's sort of, or the Nazi sort of view of the, the Jewish or anyone that wasn't this Aryan race is if you're not the same as us, we're going to remove you. Well, and war is so unjust just as a flat statement. But, you know, I think just as someone who is back here when Bucha was first, you know, being entered after everything happened, it was a real turning point just seeing things on social media like, wow, this is, you know, we knew it was bad, but this is so bad. It, it was very uh, horrific. And when we went up there, we met up with a uh, young doctor called Sergei, who's a Ukrainian doctor, um, and he'd set up a clinic in a school. 
Um, and, you know, and it was in a, a classroom for sort of, I guess it was sort of ages sort of three to five. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that classroom will never be the same again. The amount of blood that's on those wooden floors will, will never be sort of in. But it was surreal treating casualties on, again, makeshift beds in a, in a you know, kindergarten in essence. And all around you is still like... It's like the day that the kids left, like all of their pictures are still on the wall, all of their little drawers with all of their like pencils and coloring books and everything's all still there and all the stuff's on the outside of the walls. It's still a kindergarten. But then in the center of the room is, you know, um, men and women fighting for their lives and a bunch of people who are also a majority of volunteers mm-hmm. trying to keep these people alive, you know. And, you know, you just think this is someone's this is a kid's school. How are they ever going to return to you yeah. know, the amount of death and destruction that's happened just in this room alone? And that was one of three rooms that we sort of had going there. And he's, you know, we just feel for those those kids at some point, they're going to come back. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, by the end of sort of that, once the Russian forces have been pushed pretty much all the way up out into Belarus and, and, and that sort of um, stage of the, the conflict sort of ended in terms of Russia's uh, view of it. Um, you know, a lot of humanitarian work was then sort of tried to be done in that area. Now, it did take a several sort of, I'd say probably another week and a half, almost two weeks since this happened for like the ICRC or the Red Cross to arrive. Mm-hmm. You know, for whatever reason, there's a lot of politics involved in, in that. But like personally, I was very upset with how long it took mm-hmm. our so-called international watchdog to appear. Mm-hmm. I know, and it was just like, you know, when they arrived and we were sat on the back step of the ambulance and there was me, there was Tim, there was another medic with me and Sergey, and, um, you know, the ICRC turn up in their white land cruisers with their giant red flags flying into the town square. And we're just down the road from the church here where the mass graves was and uh, Sergey and they get out and they're looking around and they're all in their pristine sort of almost like suits it was very bizarre and sergey just stands up and he's just like well where the, have you guys been mm-hmm. like what have you been doing like yeah well, my my country's being ravished like where have you been yeah and they're like you know and it's, it, it was a bit awkward and you know so yeah i think it was very stressed and emotional lots of emotional at that point like you know the guy had been in that forward position since the beginning of the war as well so the guy at this point probably almost 35 40 days mm-hmm. of dealing with casualties stuck in between the ukrainian and the russian forces so you know the poor guys had a hell of a trip uh, for what he has and you know then to see the international community sort of maybe not dragging its heels, but not being as swift as what people would like to have seen, especially when the area was completely safe. There's people, yeah. press guys walking around, their helmets and body armor, you're just like, you don't need that here right now. And they're just like, well, you know, I'm like, okay, yeah, if it makes your video look better or whatever, I was like, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, you're, you're like a week late. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, um, But it's quite interesting. Like the, the press were very initially very good. And then after a while, it was like Vulture City, as you can imagine, right? The first, yeah. <laughs> the initial press people that were the forward thing. And there was, I think, um, there was a guy from um, um, CBC, I think he was from. And, you know, he came across us and we were, we were involved. And the Russians were very close to us. And there was a lot of fighting. We were in a forward position supporting the um, the National Army at this point that were fighting. And uh, he's like, is it safe to be here? I was like, probably not. And he's like, oh, you guys speak English. We're like, oh, yeah, yeah. He's like, where are you guys from? Oh, I'm from Ontario. He's just like, what? Like, and he's yeah. like, can I do a story? I was like, absolutely not right now. No, no, no like, not the moment. Not right now. I was like, why are you even here? He's just like, oh, I think we're in the wrong place. And like, Sergey's there with his rifle and he's just like, oh, you're definitely in the wrong place. You should, <laughs> you should probably turn around and drive yeah. very fast the other way. Um, you know, and it's funny to bump across these people and then, you know, he, he made an effort to try and find us later on and, you know, he came to view us and he, he came to say, like, hey, thanks for giving us the advice or whatever and whatnot. And he was very good. And, but then 
he went back to the same place where that fighting happened um, and there's a lot of destroyed Russian vehicles and, and infrastructure and stuff. And it, it was just a sea of press. Like, mm-hmm. you couldn't move um, for people trying to get that sort of money shot. of the. And it was... I understand that they'd like to take the money shot of the of the bodies and the coverage and that, but you know, by that point, I found it very disrespectful in the fact that you know everyone's crowding around what was of somebody's course. family, and you're like, okay, let's just, you know, the world doesn't need to see any more of this. I know that we, as a society, are very sort of we're not sort of shocked by a lot of things anymore. I mm-hmm. think you know because we're so used to seeing so much stuff, and you know we're not numb to it. But you know, seeing another dead body on the street, we're kind of most people are like, oh, okay. Well, and I, I think about that story that uh, I, I, I don't know the man's name, but he saw his whole family murdered on Twitter. Like, that's just a crazy thing that we can be in a war now and you know find out that your two children and your wife are dead because someone posted on on social media. Yeah. And, and and that goes back to this whole thing, like, you know, this is the first time since, like, the Gulf War that this has ever happened mm-hmm. to this level. And, uh, you know, it's, it, and everything is streamed on TikTok, uh, you know, Instagram or, or Facebook Live. Like, it's all there. Like, you can pretty much search for anything. And, uh, you know, it's, it's quite sad. Um, but, again, I think, you know, we lost track of a lot of things there of trying to provide that dignity to the deceased. You mm-hmm. know? And, and that's a very big part of things, you know. And I think... You know, any paramedic or any medical professional, most general people will tell you, like, you know, the dead are sacred just as much as the living are. Like, you know, and, you know, just because they're lying in the street and it will make a great story and a great picture doesn't necessarily mean it should be done. Mm -hmm. You know, we should respect all of this and, you know, and and give them a dignified send off, especially because they've died in such horrific way. For sure. Um, You know, so that's always a big thing there. And, you know. And then you started having all of the other horror stories of the survivors coming out, like especially the the young girls and the women that were just systematically raped, attacked, beaten. And you just think, uh, you know, as a as a as a gentleman, like you know, I never really understand what drives someone to to do that in the mm-hmm. first place. Let alone to the level that we were seeing some of this stuff, like so much so that there's whole charities devoted to providing rape kits, and we're talking hundreds of thousands of them, not like two or three yeah and that's just horrific to know that you know in 2022 that you know there's still violence to that level that that sort of happens on on such a grand scale and it wasn't it and it was horrific to see you know we get some of these some of the women that we would come across just just scared to death Mm -hmm. of anything you know even trying to come towards for help or whatever just you know and i can't imagine the trauma that they're going to suffer with for for a long time and you know and some of the stories of the initial Russian occupation there of saying, you know, some of these people are like, oh, they came into our house, they took my son away and they shot him outside. Yeah. You know, and she's, you know, well, I don't know why they shot my son. Like, no one told me anything. They just left him there. And I'm just like, how horrific would that be? And you can't bury him. Uh, you know, or you can't do a church service. You can't call the police because no one's coming to help you. Mm-hmm. You know, and I just think how helpless they must have felt uh, on that side of things. And, you know, the the conflict's still very much ongoing and I think, you know, what annoys me the most and when we spoke the other day is, you know, it's starting to filter out the media because it's not the done thing anymore. There's something yeah. new happening. And and we saw it in country when um was it the Oscars or whatever where Will Smith <laughs> slapped Chris Rock or whatever. Yeah. And, and you know, that was like trending everywhere and I was like how Where is, is that, that energy? You how know? is that trending uh, or causing more of a stir, I said that than, you know, like all these dead kids that have been murdered here. Yeah. And I'm like, why is that more of an issue? And I'm sure, like, 
Will Smith and that probably never intended for any of that to sort of get no. to the level it is. And I'm sure he, if he sort there and went about it and went, actually, yeah. Yeah. You know, the world's pretty sick in the fact that we pick and choose what we choose to be upset about these days or whatever. But, um, you know, I found it very annoying. And, and, you know, coming back to Canada, I found it very difficult, even even just in uh, Pearson. You know, someone was losing her mind at Tim Hortons because she had to wait in the line. <laughs> it's just yeah, like... It's people dying. Oh, there's bigger time. problems. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was difficult to sort of deal with. And, you know, the, the team that came back with me um, that, that spread out around the world back to UK or to BC and to, to America said the same things. They were like, oh, man, this is going to be hard to go yeah. back to sort of general normality. And the rest of the team that are still in Ukraine are, you know, they've been now you know, close to 75-ish days um, pretty much dealing with this. Um, they were in a forward position sort of um, just by Kharkiv right now. Um, obviously, in the last sort of couple of days, the Ukrainian forces have managed to push the Russians back from Kharkiv, thank God. So there's now like this 20-kilometer sort of buffer zone around the city. Um, but up until then, it was being, uh, you know, again, much like Kiev, rockets, mortar attacks, indiscriminate attacks. And, you know, the ambulance service there has been targeted pretty badly with vehicles destroyed, personnel killed and injured. Um, you know, and, and you don't think of your local ambulance service of having to require, you know, ballistic body armor, helmets and ballistic glasses just to go on a 911 call. Mm-hmm. Like, that's just, it's not a thing. Like, you know, you could even argue, like, to the days that, you know, we should be a society where even the police don't have to mm-hmm. wear that kind of stuff. But obviously the violence is still there. But, you know, the fact that local ambulance crews, they come in every day and they book on their duty and they know that, their lifespan could end at any point mm-hmm. you know and i think it's very humbling that they are getting back into their vehicles which are unarmored um, they're checking their equipment and they're still responding to the calls for help they're not sitting there going oh i'm not going it's too dangerous you know mm-hmm. or I'm, I'm putting my you know um refusal to work because it's going to put me at risk type thing mm-hmm. uh you know it's it's very interesting to see that these young men and women and they are mostly very young um will don their uniform and then go, you know, CNN did a really good article on Kharkiv. Um, one of the crews only had one set of body armor and one helmet for the three of them. And it was like, well, well who wears the armor and helmet today? And, mm-hmm. they, and they literally took it like a, a rock, paper, scissors, in essence, to see who wore the protective gear. And you just think, wow. this is insane that even now, and, you know, uh, and this brings me back to my argument and sort of some of the aid charities is so much money has been sent there but so much of it just doesn't get used yeah. because of overheads of charities and other stuff and bits and pieces. So, you know, trying to find that mid-balance is, is very difficult. But, you know, working with those um, guys and girls responding to calls, the fact that they would go out in the middle of an artillery strike with us, um, you know, with no protective equipment on, knowing full well that at any moment we could probably, or all of us could just be killed within an instant, Um but they still went out and did it and they're still doing it now every single day. And when you talk about, you know, their pay and conditions, it's, it's pittance. Mm-hmm. It really is pittance. Um, you know, we're, we're talking sort of less than the equivalent of sort of uh, $2.50 an hour they get wow. for what they do. And, you know, they're out every day, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, responding to shellings, blasts uh, and, and general emergencies as well, just while trying to get on with their own lives. But at the same time, worrying is my family safe at home or are they going to be the next victims of mm-hmm. the blast? You know, so, you know, and it, it's very humbling to sort of see that they, you know, paramedicine around the world is, is the same, right? You know, you know, they have the same drive as I have, as the guys in Toronto, as the, you know, the paramedics in London and New York have. Like, you know, yeah. it's a fact of, you know, we're all here to try and help people and that's our, our ultimate goal regardless of where you are. So, 
you know hats off to them and you know i'm i'm very cognitive of the fact that you know that it's still going on over there and they still do need help to some degree um but it's got to be a very targeted approach of helping them now. You mm-hmm. can't just, like I say, turn up and go, well, I'm just here to help. Like, you know, there's got to be a, a bit of give and take with it. So the the plan for us to go back is obviously in, in full swing with, with specialised vehicles and equipment for them um, on that sort of thing. We're trying to get some good donations from some of the bigger companies. We're in talks with trying to get some of the oil executive people to mm-hmm. release some of their funds since they have a lot of them, <laughs> um, you know, and their hands aren't exactly clean of uh, yes. of some of the Russian engagements. So, um, we're, you know, we're hopeful to try and levy some uh, some cash out of them but ultimately would be to bring them back specialist um, vehicles for them to respond to certain areas because the tr- traditional ambulance can't get around a lot of the mm-hmm. country anymore the infrastructure is destroyed the roads are gone um, you know and what roads are left are super congested or they've got armored vehicles driving up and down them all day so if you imagine after a while it starts yeah. to fall apart um, so you know your chevy day van with a box on the back isn't exactly <laughs> going to last too long trying to get around so we're looking at specialized sort of four by fours um uh, that have been converted to carry stretchers in uh, by a uk company that does a lot of this stuff um and we're in conjunction of working with them to get these vehicles sort of uh, ready to go equipped and sort of sent out to um ukraine for them so fingers crossed that will be able to be sorted um relatively soon to continue their sort of life-saving work. The team of mine that was in Kharkiv now, they've gone back to Kiev for a little bit of um, almost like rest and recuperation Mm -hmm. um, because you could tell that some of them were starting to have a little bit of sort of fatigue sort of going on there. And it was like, yeah, you guys have to get back. You need to rotate. Um, Unfortunately, because there's so much going on there and there is such a limited medical infrastructure, there isn't really a lot of people to replace them with. So, Mm -hmm. you know, luckily I have... um, a good sort of network of people in the UK um, that are willing to sort of rotate in and out. A lot of ex-military medics, current paramedics and specialist roles and military doctors and whatnot that are happy to uh, to sort of rotate in and out. Um, the problem then comes with logistics. So from where they are um, on the side of the country, it's sort of like anywhere between a 14 to 16 hour trip at the best of times. So you're looking at almost a day to kind of get there. So, you know, there's a lot of logistics involved with moving those people. Mm-hmm. And when it comes down to stuff like uh, fuel shortages as well and, and vehicles just to move people. Yeah. Um, you know, the train network is semi-intact there. It is still working. Um, but again, it's um, very much sort of uh, under a lot of pressure with, you know, refugees, medical aid and trying to move people backwards and forwards. So, you know, all the things that we take for granted here are are still suffering sort of mm-hmm. there. So, you know, it's, it's a very interesting development that's happening there. And, you know, the Ukrainians are doing an incredibly good job, way better than anyone in the world probably thought they were going to do uh, to try and keep this going. And they have. They've done incredibly well to, to keep the Russians at bay. Well, and such a big bad guy. Like, the Russians are just massive, you know? <laughs> and that's it. Like, for years, we were sort of told that, you know, from the Cold War, like, the big Russian bear, and they could kill us at any moment. And to some extent they could still press the button and wipe out most of the planet but you know i think the argument is we're playing the political game now is very difficult right and you look at it from different views and i'm no political person but you know is supplying arms and equipment just the same as pretty much fighting there you know this mm-hmm. argument is sort of tit for tat um you know we're in essence playing a proxy war there mm-hmm. uh, in the hopes that they you know and they will win i think you know in the hopes of like well they keep the russians at bay for a bit but then equally this big uh, fear of the russians is well was it all dumbfounded because all oh, their equipment is still incredibly old they do have some good equipment but in such small numbers so you sort of look there and go 
well, if our modern-day anti-tank weapons and other stuff destroy their stuff with ease, you know, well, have we just been pandering to this big Russian horde for so long that we are just thinking, oh, they're just really bad and scary, we don't mess with them? Big boogeyman, is, it, is it, it really? like? Yeah, and are they really that bad now? Or are they? is it all just a big facade and we've just sort of been, they've done the world's best cover job mm-hmm. and the West has bought it quite substantially? Um Again, that's a big sort of a political and military bait for another time on that sort of thing. But, um, yeah, I think, you know, the aid and stuff going there is, is finally starting to get where it needs to go. Um, but it took an incredibly long time for it to get there. And I would argue that most of it, a lot of it was wasted. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel bad because, you know, a lot of people donate thinking like, you know, people don't have a lot of money these days. And, you know, we've, everyone understands that, you know, just giving like 10, 15, 20 bucks and you think, oh, yeah, this is really good. But the odds of that 20 bucks actually getting to where it needs to go is, mm-hmm. is pretty slim. And that's a sad state of affairs, I think. And it's, you know, looking at how frustrated I got with some of the charities of them. Well, we can't send supplies. We're not going into the country yet or this. And I'm like. Well, what are you guys doing? Exactly. Why are you here? (laughs) What are you doing? Like, can you, you know, can we send someone to get supplies? No, no, it doesn't work like that. Okay, so how... Yeah. How does this work, man? Like, we have to just wait now? Yeah. Like, you know, I was like, if people are starving here, like, we have no equipment for this, that, and that. I was like, you know, I understand if they were worried about people trying to steal stuff, but the fact that we, like, you know, sent representatives to them and said, like, hey, like, this is where we are. This is, here's all the pictures. Here's all the things going on. Like, we need help. Mm-hmm. We can see it right there. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, we can't have it, though. But it's right there. Well, and that's something we talked about the other day is, you know, everyone was just on the border, like just sitting on yeah. the outside, just looking in, you know? Yeah, huge amount of stuff um, just sat on the border. And, you know, yes, uh, you know, the two million sort of refugees in a very short space of time takes up a huge amount of resources. But uh, when you look at this and you just think, well, you're sitting on these supplies and, you know, watching some of it get destroyed in the rain and like all these vehicles sat there that get donated and you're like, you know, these guys like need these like all the way in. It's not as if we're just saying like there's no chain of, of record of where this stuff's going. Yeah. Like there is a chain. We're saying like we need it. We can get it to these people right here and where it needs to be the end user. It's going to end up there anyway, mm-hmm. but just minus the red tape and bureaucracy that comes with it um, to sort of get it in. But luckily we had quite a good reputation with the Ukrainians um, and the special police bureau and, and the Ministry of Health, you know, so much so that, you know, usually if we asked for something by the end, they would get it. I never really asked how they got it. Um, <laughs> and to be honest, I didn't really care. I was like, yeah. and, and to be honest, I'm sure there was a lot of sort of backhanded deals done. Because yeah. unfortunately, I think that's how things needed to be done. And that's yeah. how you get a lot of things done in, in Europe nowadays anyway. Um, but we had such a good rapport with them in the fact that they were, you know, our training was so good when we started training the, um, what they call the Territorial Defense Force. Um, which is basically just like you and me that would volunteer to defend Kenora. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just general population that went, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll stand up and help defend Kenora. You know, we get very basic training, like two or three days of how to use a firearm. Um, here's your rifle. Here's your fingerprints done. Um, you know, mm-hmm. off you go. Uh, this is your unit commander. He'll tell you what you need to do. Um, you know, when we provided all the medical training for a lot of the sort of general population there, whether it's territorial defense, police, the parking attendants, like, you know, the city workers and stuff, um, you know, because everyone was involved in some level of defense somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so we, we took them through what's called like TCCC or the Tactical Combat Casualty Care Course um, and a condensed version of it so that they could use a tourniquet for massive hemorrhage. They could use hemostatic agents for wound packing, chest seals, um, you know, how to open airways check a patient, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, the big ticket items, like I say, to prevent um, 
a needless death. And, you know, our training was so good. Uh, or, well, the word of mouth was so good, should I say. I wouldn't necessarily <laughs> say that we were the best. We're not blowing our own trumpet there. But um, the word of mouth was so good that units and people from all over Kiev were asking to come and get training from us. They were like, we want the Canadians. We want the Canadians. And it was <laughs> like, and we're like, well, there's not enough of us to do yeah. all of this. And there certainly wasn't enough supplies to give everyone their own, like, tourniquet, um, specialist dressing, uh, hemostatics, and everything like that. And that became the challenge then was how do we equip, you know, close to six to 7,000 people mm-hmm. with this stuff? And I'm like, we, I was like, I haven't got the, we haven't got the resources to do that. That's like military level. Yeah. Um, equipment um and even when we tried to buy that kind of stuff so you know with my you know I, I, back to my contacts at uk i said hey man like here's my credit card number how many of these can you buy yeah you know i think in the end i spent something like twenty two thousand dollars on buying tourniquets wow. and blast dresses and stuff because i was like you know what i can always obviously you can i can always pay that back <laughs> deal with it later <laughs> and obviously if you're listening i will pay it back um is <laughs> the fact that you know we went out and we're you know i was like how many of these can you buy uh you know, in a short period of time. And, and Brad, who's a, an Aussie friend of mine who lives in the UK, um, he's like, yeah, sure, all right. And he went around to all the different suppliers and, and ambulance services and people that he knew to pull strings and was like, hey, I need as many of these as you can get. And fair play to him. He, you know, he, he managed to get several hundred of each that we needed. And he physically got in his car and he drove them to the border for us. Wow. Um, because you, couldn't po- you can't post to Ukraine. No, um, no. The, the postal service is still there. It's just yeah, whether or Bigger not it gets right anywhere. Bigger things right now, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and he drove all the way to the border to give us his equipment, much like many other of our um, sort of uh, allies in the UK did. You know, people would arrive. Um, you know, Steve Bray is another guy that did incredibly well for us to organize equipment. Um, you know, uh, Danny Lay is another guy that did an incredibly good job. And Danny's actually driving right now as we speak in his van back from the UK to Kiev to deliver more supplies, all off his own um, sort of back. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and Danny's another paramedic. Like, you know, um, he works in the ambulance service in the UK and he's very much in the same of hey let's go and do something useful and you know you could argue that individuals like that are probably more useful than some of the big aid streams and i personally think that they've been more useful in bringing supplies where they need to be in a targeted approach than than the sort of big aid bracket because of the the overhead the bureaucracy and the, and the sort of bigger picture stuff there but um you know the fact that people came together and, and you know people donating money and say hey what can we buy for you or do you need money how can i how's the best way to give this to you you know and, and you know even people that were like hey i don't have a lot of money but i you know i've got this i'd like to donate it for you and you know it was just phenomenal support on that level of stuff you know and it was never about getting money out of people mm-hmm. like it, it really isn't like you know cash is always king to help get other equipment and, and it gives you more leverage but you know simple things are saying if you were like hey like do you have any do you have hiking boots mm-hmm. yeah yeah they're in good condition yeah 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 do you use them anymore no cool put them in the van they're gonna come and get them from you like stuff like that because a lot of the territorial defense guys had like no equipment mm-hmm. they had a rifle and they had uh, one magazine uh, with some ammunition in and that was pretty much it and they were given usually uh, some form of camouflage jacket maybe and they looked a bit at uh, like hodgepodge of stuff and you know they didn't have boots they didn't have any cold weather gear they didn't have any eyewear they didn't have a helmet they didn't have body armor they didn't even have any like magazine pouches to put their wow. ammunition or anything like that so we were you know at the time then was like i didn't realize that you guys were this bad i was like i got tons of this junk in my shed or whatever yeah. from, like that you've collected over the years and you know you're like oh i wish i could have brought more so you know the the feelers and the word went out and a lot of people came 
um, very generously to help provide that sort of stuff you know um, ballistic armor is obviously very expensive and it's also quite difficult to sort of come by most of the time anyway especially because they need you know everyone in the world is buying it pretty much to send to ukraine so we're not talking like you know two or three sets of plates we're mm-hmm. talking like 20 30,000 units of this stuff you know mm-hmm. um you know and apart from military level stuff that stuff doesn't really exist in, mm-hmm. in the civilian side of things for for good reason you don't want bank robbers running around <laughs> body armor and helmets all the time but um you know the supply chain issues were, were a big thing but the the actual getting together of people and, and the support from the outside world was phenomenal i have to admit like you know i never people i've never met you know going out of their way to say hey um you know sending us messages uh, here what do i use to help with do, can we help buy this can we do this is this any use to you you know was was really good and you know the national health service in the uk were incredibly good as well with donating equipment um especially a lot of their obsolete stuff that like most government um, organizations you can't just give it away in case it breaks and then they become financially liable or get sued or whatever mm-hmm. they're, you know they're like hey we've got all this old stuff like do you want to take it? Yeah, absolutely. I'll take all the pediatric monitors, all this other stuff for for um, for people and stuff. So it, it worked out relatively good in the end. Um, but again, like the the actual end result over what people are saying they were coming to help with was was very hit and miss. Like mm-hmm. you know, very few people actually um, went through with what they said they were going to go do there. Uh, and it was all a lot of talk. A lot of people did a lot of talk. They managed to get into the country. They took their pictures and they did their little handover stuff, and then they left. And it was yeah. kind of like, "Well, you didn't. What did you like? The amount of resources you've expended just to get there for that Instagram photo, like you could have just used to buy more of the equipment that they yeah. needed." Um, so you know that that's an also another big bugbear of mine is like you say we go back to the war tourism thing. It's just crazy. It's not a game. Like it's it's a it's a war, and it's their country. It's their lives that are on the line. It's not about the best Instagram likes or the best video out there or whatever. Well, and that's the thing, you know, someone happens to go over there and they make it home safely. You're coming back to a country that's most likely not going through a war. Like they can't leave. No. And that's it. Right. And, and, and they're very cognitive of the fact that, you know, most of them don't want to leave. You know, the, the women and children trying to get out is, is a, is a, a very separate matter. And mm-hmm. you know, everyone else that wants to stay and fight are, are definitely staying fighting or defending their country in some way. Um, th- they were very sort of adamant, especially when we were ready to, when we were unfortunately leaving, um, you know, we'd love to have stayed, but, you know, unfortunately have to come back to sort of normality at some point um, <laughs> is the fact that, you know, they were like, please don't let the world forget about us, you know, and that's that's the number one fear is that, you know, if the support from the West and everything else just stops, that they will be up creek there big time because they won't have the resources to continue to help fight um you know and they were very up very upset and you know and saying like please don't let us please don't let the world forget and unfortunately it's, it's starting to already mm-hmm. right as the day goes on and the weeks go on people are like oh it's still going on there yeah okay um you know but that the human sacrifice and the disasters and everything is still going on there much like it is the rest of the world and you know we, we you know, we shouldn't necessarily prioritize Ukraine over like Sudan and, uh, you know, and Afghanistan and, and, mm-hmm. and Africa and everything else. Right. But, um, you know, this is very much more um, closer, I think, for a lot of people than, than some of the other sort of uh, instances going on around the world right now. But, um, yeah, they, they just definitely don't want us to, to forget them. Mm-hmm. Um, they certainly haven't forgotten us. And, and, you know, I speak daily with most of the people that I worked with there. Mm-hmm. Um 
and you know they're all very keen to, to see what Canada's like. And you know, I just, when, when I got back here and sent them all the pictures of the snow and stuff, they were amazed that there's still snow here, and mm-hmm. you know the lakes and everything is very beautiful, and they're they're amazed at like, oh, that looks beautiful and whatnot. And you know, uh, and it's a shame that some of them, will, well, majority of them, will never get to experience the the sort of sense of. Uh, sort of joy and carelessness that we have in Canada or, or in quotes the freedom well and just uh, the stuff we take for granted exactly very much so like I came back and I was like oh yeah I haven't really got it in the fridge I'll just order a Domino's pizza yeah, and, like, yeah. <laughs> and you just yeah. think how first world of me to just sit there and go oh I'll just order a Domino's and you just think hmm yeah uh, you know and I found it a bit <laughs> difficult to sort of get back to, to sort of uh, relative normality here you know work is is, is always a good uh, escape to it and we have a pretty good uh, mental health support program where we are so you know most of that's all in hand but you know i still find myself going back still feeling very guilty about leaving um especially in the state that we left uh the the, the country was in you know very proud of what my team and the ukrainians have managed to achieve so far um but ultimately you know we all felt an immense sense of guilt when we walked across that border from ukraine to poland um, mixed in with a lot of refugees at the time who had just pretty much the clothes on their back and whatever they could carry. Uh, you know, I helped carry a young young kid on my shoulders. Um, you know, his, his family had sort of been murdered, attacked and whatnot, and he'd lost the majority of his family. And, you know, you could tell in his eyes, just silent, sulking little kid, you know, and you, you just think, that's just horrific. This kid, you know, what does he see what's he going to live with uh, it's going to the shape the next life. generation very much so you know the fact that he's had that you know and it's, it's it's sad and you know knowing now that he's now going to another country where he's got no help or no support and you know with his with his grandmother who's who speaks you know very little doesn't really have a lot of money mm-hmm. and they only have what they have carrying you know and it's just it's sad to see that you know this stuff's still going on right and you know for us walking through we all we all had immense guilt of going oh we you know, it doesn't feel right to leave right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, you know, you, you've got to come back to your own life at some point in order to then be able to try and do more good mm-hmm. um, in in the long run. So, you know, I have found it difficult to sort of get back to normality, especially in, in Kenora. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's been a little bit difficult on that side of things. But, yeah, I'm, I'm confident that we'll be able to get the supplies needed that we would like to go back with and support them. Uh, and, you know, they're very keen and very uh, open to support uh, anyone here that is, you know, happy to help us and whatnot. And they've done little video messages back and everything like that. You know, they're not the kind of people that just take, take, take and you get nothing back from them. No, it's the no. fact that, you know, they've been very, very open. They're like, you know, if anyone wants to talk to us or if they want to, you know, have a video call with us, like they're happy to discuss things with them and tell them like, you know, what the situation's like on the ground for real, or what they're doing, how things are changing and whatnot. So there's, you know, this huge sort of um, sort of bonding between the two nations in essence of sort of um, what's going on there. And it's nice to see that the world is relatively trying to support more than just the military side of things at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, this is going to be decades to, to fix, unfortunately. It's not going to be a quick fix. Well, and something you hit on the other day, um, you know, say things, what happens with this Ukraine situation? Where does this stop? You know, like you talked lots about how the Russians just the general mindset and stuff like that you know where does it stop that's the big question and that's it you know i think and i feel for 
you know, a lot of the Russians, and I, I don't have hatred for, for Russians, even after seeing uh, the destruction and, and the necessary killing and, and murder and rape and stuff that they did, um, you know, because you can't tell a whole country no. um, with the actions of whoever did it. Um, you know, and unfortunately, I don't think we'll ever find out who did, um, you know, kill, murder and do all of the raping and the pillaging and everything. That's that's just something and for Fortunately, realistically, it's probably never going to happen, much like um, Vladimir Putin's also never probably going to be stood in the Hague criminal court for war crimes. I just, you know, as much as people think that, oh, yeah, we're, we're, we're going to write a strongly worded letter and say he's going to the Hague. It's, just, it's not going to happen, yeah. um, you know, a- unless we suddenly take over Russia and announce him out of power and we physically drag him to the Hague like we did with uh, the rest of the Nazi party. Um, during that, I don't think it's going to, it's not going to happen. Um, so... I do find it difficult in that sort of stance that I don't tar all Russians with the with the same brush or mm-hmm. Russian people as such, uh, or even all of their own military, because there's a lot of people there in their military that probably have absolutely zero idea what's well, going on. Yeah, exactly. That's something I was going to ask about is, you know, when this first started happening and everything started breaking out, I, I think I was watching something from the UN where someone was reading text messages between a, a young soldier and his mother. And it's it's just amazing to see, you know, the lies that were told to their own forces. And then, you know, I think when things first started out, there was a lot of questions of not only is this horrible to the Ukrainians, but like, wow just the atrocities to the own like their own russian population oh massively yeah and i think you know when we looked at the early stages of the war you know and we saw those text messages and and you know majority of the russians said they were going on an exercise and then all of a sudden they were issued live ammunition and they take their phones away and they get told to go to a good reference in essence you know I, i'm not saying that the general russian is is uneducated but they're certainly not educated to the same sort of level um of like geography and sort of world mm-hmm. affairs as sort of like we are um you know, and I think a lot of them were probably, especially the conscript sides in the east of the country, were were probably not completely unaware of what's going on. You know, they were like, "Oh, I'm not really sure what's going on." But you know, you got to argue at some point. Is like, well, you would have known you're in Ukraine at some point when someone's shooting back at you. That's not an yeah. exercise anymore. Like, at what point didn't anyone just hold the hand up and go stop? Well, we're getting out of here, right? And but, that becomes so evident with Bucha. Like, you know, I I, I had. I don't know if sympathy is the correct term to use, but, you know, that was definitely a thought going in my mind, especially when I heard those text messages being read out loud. And then you see the atrocities that happened in Bucha and it's just like, okay, well, you know, you're not the victims here (laughs) at this point. It's it's very difficult because you've got different elements of the Russian military. You have conscripts, you have uh, regular army troops, and then you have like career or, or like elite soldiers as such. So mainly in the north of the country, especially through um, uh, that sort of level of stuff, was mainly airborne forces. So what they would denote as sort of their elite troops in essence. So And they were denoted by the, the sort of white V that you had, especially from like Belarus and whatnot. So most of their airborne troops are what you would call career soldiers. They were supposed to be very good at what they do and they're, and they're very proficient. So, you know, without really ever spending any time with any Russian troops, I don't know what level of sort of training or tenacity or anything they're, they're sort of at. Um, you know, the British Airborne forces, much like the Canadian and, and the Americans are sort of treated as sort of what we denote as like shock troops. They are supposed to be elite. They're supposed to be very uh, aggressive in what they do and get the task done. But, you know, there hasn't really been any cases of any of our countries going in somewhere and just murdering people left, right, mm-hmm. center, and then sort of going, oh, yeah, mission complete. Um, but I think 
with this is the north of the country is very different because they had a very different type of fighting force to the east um you know and and the eastern forces moved very swiftly just because they had the momentum and the ukrainians were caught sort of off guard um when you look at places like Mariupol, you have a very different element stuff where you have Chechen fighters and, and potentially even foreign um, military groups like the Wagner Group and other stuff like that. Um, and you could argue that they're basically paid mercenaries that are going in there. And they don't, there's technically no rules with them because they're not actually part of the Russian military. So they mm-hmm. can kind of just get away with whatever they want. Um, I would like to think that the general Russian soldier would put a stop to you know, his comrades that would be attempted to do something heinous mm-hmm. or, or against uh, sort of the Geneva Convention. Um, you know, I'd like, just like I would like to think that any Canadian soldier or British soldier would stand up regardless of what the situation and say, hey, stop, this is wrong mm-hmm. um, on that side of thing. But they are very much kept in the dark. And I think what happened at Chernobyl is a very big display of that. For when sure. you have a whole armoured company that decided to dig in vehicles and troops in the exclusion zone. And you think there and you just think anyone normal, and you mention the word Chernobyl, most people are like, oh, that's really bad. Stay away. Um, But when you look at it and then the fact that like over 300 of them suddenly get really sick with radiation poisoning, and a lot of them ended up going to Ukrainian uh, lines and hospitals to be treated. And I remember the Ukrainian saying to them like, how dumb are you? Like, what were you guys thinking? Yeah. And these are like 19 to 25 year olds. They have zero concept of what, Chernobyl is or ever was because I hardly think in Soviet uh, even in Russia they're certainly not telling them about the worst Soviet Union disaster uh, ever Mm -hmm. so you know it's probably not in their school textbooks or in any of their training or anything like that whereas you know most people have probably seen the Netflix or Amazon documentary or Chernobyl Mm -hmm. anyway now so they know what sort of happened there but most of these kids would have zero idea what it was as far as they're concerned it's a Ukrainian nuclear power plant (laughs) Um, so the fact that they were digging into what is in essence like massively irradiated ground just shows the lack of um not intelligence that's probably the wrong word the the lack of understanding of sort of what's going on Mm -hmm. in in everything you know um we met a few russian soldiers that were prisoners of war and stuff and they were all very young um neither of them really had any idea what was going on or they certainly didn't let anything into sort of the ukrainian police or, or the military interrogating them or anything like that you know so it was very interesting to see and i think you're right is that you know initially there was a bit of sympathy of like oh these guys are, are, are really caught off guard here um but then seeing what some of their brethren had done you know i'm wondering if you know morale in the, in the russian army appears to be very low at the moment anyway mm-hmm. with you know how well the ukrainians have been fighting the fact that most russian armored vehicles have zero defense against any of the weaponry that they uh, have currently been supplied by the West, um, which has been evident by the thousands of tanks and armoured vehicles lost. Uh, you know, again, watching a modern conflict unfold like this is, is never been done. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's probably lots of information gathering going on now between most nations about what we're actually um, useful for, what, what we can change in our own doctrine and stuff. But, um, yeah, I think the general Russian population, again, it is very much um, unaware of what's actually happening there right now. Um, their censorship is very good. Uh, there was initially, there was quite a lot of protests about the war and that sort of pittled down just because they've just kept, a, in essence, an iron fist mm-hmm. um, on that. And, you know, and Putin's been no stranger to say that he, he glorifies the old Soviet Union days and he wants that sort of glory of the Soviet Union back, um, which I'm pretty sure 90% of the world would say that's not a good idea to bring back. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, communism just doesn't work to the level that everyone seems to think this utopia thing does and you know if you ask anyone in europe 
oh, would you like to be back into the Soviet Union? They, they would fight until there's nothing left. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's pretty much like, you know, the, the proof of them not really caring about Ukraine is very much adamant there in, in, in Mariupol, for example, because the whole city is just being leveled. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, what, what tactical significance is leveling a city? Zero. Because the whole idea of this is that you were supposed to take over the country and then use it, right? But yeah. well, you can't do that if you've just destroyed everything. Yeah. And I, I mean, at this point, I couldn't even tell you what the whole point of this was. Like, uh, I don't think anybody really knows. And I think it's all lost track. Uh, originally, it was about NATO. Then it was denazification. Now it's something else. And, you know, I, I met so many Jewish people in Ukraine. It was unreal. And yeah. I was like, oh, yeah. And I didn't, again, very naive of me, didn't quite. And it was very uh, sort of Christian Orthodox area. But I didn't understand there was such a massive Jewish population in Ukraine. So you sit there and you're like, how on earth can they try and sell denazification to a country that has a massive Jewish population? Well, Zelensky himself, his parents are Holocaust survivors, it's, are they not? Yeah, it makes no sense um, on any of it. And I think, you know, what was supposed to be this special operation of the Russians, supposed to take three days, is now in day, what, close to 73, 74 or something. Mm-hmm. And you just think, you just look at it and you just go, they've been handed, they've had their bottoms handed to them and now they're trying to save some sort of face. Mm-hmm. Now the Victory Day um, parades in Russia are, are soon um, and, you know, a lot of people in Ukraine are worried that there's going to be a massive attack of some description or mass bombings or something for so the Russians can sort of save face because, you know, I think Vladimir Putin had some difficult conversations with his own population at some point um, to discuss sort of like what's happened. And, you know, you, you see on some of the feeds now that have come out of Russia, you know, people are starting to ask questions like, where is my child? Where is my husband? Like, mm-hmm. you know, you look at the sinking of the Moldov ship, you know, and you're just like, where are all the crew? And, mm-hmm. the, you know, the only people that seem to appear to get off that was whatever the Turkish cruiser uh, sort of rescued. But no one's heard anything or people of them. So, you know, you, the Russians are very much very good at trying to cover their own um, sort of failures in essence. Uh, but it's a shame, like, you know, you go to Homestore where the Antonov plane was, um, you know, that was destroyed. It was supposed to be a um, landing head. The paratrooper was supposed to secure it. And it was supposed to land planes and tanks and everything there. And it was supposed to swiftly be able to take north of Kiev. Um, obviously, that fell dismally um, when they at least attempted to parachute um, because for some reason they tried to do like a daylight parachuting assault and the planes just got shot out of the sky. So the helicopter was sitting there thinking, going like, well, this is, just seems like a stupid idea, what they were mm-hmm. doing. And those guys and go, those those paratroopers and equipment that did make it on the ground were essentially cut off for an extended period of time um, until Ukraine just basically overrun them again. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you go to Homestol and um, not only is there just a mass amount of destruction and, and despair and the fact that the Antonov was destroyed as well, is, you know, there's over 2,500 graves for just Russian paratroopers there. You know, and the Ukrainians are, are pretty good at, trying to document who's been killed and they set up a website and a telephone number for Russians to call to say like hey like if you think your loved ones in Ukraine and you, you're not sure if they're alive like see if they're on here like mm-hmm. we've tried to document everything we can and you know I'd like to think that you know the Ukrainians definitely have held the moral high ground on majority of things um, you know the fact that they went as far as to set up a website and a telephone number that people from Russia could call to try and see if they could find their loved ones um, you know it I think it's way above and beyond what anyone requires 
to be doing in conflict. But the fact that they did do that off their own backs, uh, you know, twofold one, yeah, someone could argue, well, it's just political so they can show how many people they've killed or whatever. Like, well, yeah, but equally, if I was in a country that had very big censorship, but, you know, my husband or my son or my mother or someone wasn't going to come back, you know, I'd like to know that because mm-hmm. I know, you know, you think that the Russian government's probably not going to tell them that they've yeah. been killed. Um, and they probably don't even know. Um, is the other thing like you know the Russian losses there were so big and so fast and the communications and the command and control issues they had is it you know I think they would struggle to even figure out how many of their own men they did lose mm-hmm. um, you know and, and so it's a it's a sad offense um, of the world of where we are in in terms that this is still going on mm-hmm. um, but you know I'd like to think that you know Putin will have some difficult things to answer soon and this that will be enough to sort of thing but then you know you look at the sanctions on side of things and we go yeah yeah the sanctions are there to stop the war yeah it's great but unfortunately they affect quite a lot of the civilian population there mm-hmm. which you know again isn't isn't always the end goal right we're not there you know nobody wants the russian um, population to struggle really um you know because everyone's a human being at the end of the day but ultimately if you're you're living in this world where the government control pretty much everything and that's mm-hmm. the, that's the problem right so you know it'd be it'd be interesting to see what happens in i think the next few weeks probably um you know ukraine has made pretty big progresses and you know they're very much on the fact of you know we want our country back and i think when they when they use those terms they mean they mean all of it so donbass Ladangs, and the crimea which is you know most people have forgotten about that mm. it's actually part of Ukraine um, and in 2014 the Russians just decided to go this is us yeah, and the yeah. world then just sort of went oh okay don't 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 get into a fight you two and then it sort of escalated right so yeah um, you know it'd be very interesting to see um, what's going on I think uh, President Zelensky has you know just been the absolute definition of what a leader should be for sure um, and the way that he is you know he puts a lot of the world leaders uh, and our politicians to shame um, especially <laughs> in the fact that you know he's been t- steadfast for his people um, throughout the whole thing and you know people made jokes well he used to be a comedian I was like well you know it's funny that you know you had a comedian that turned to be one of the best leaders but we have you know uh, leaders that seem to turn into comedians so <laughs> yeah. you know we, we sort of spin around on a, on a lot of that but you know he's I, getting I stuff done very much so I, I'd love to meet the guy and I think he deserves world praise and, and sure. support because you know he he could have left at any point he, he was didn't. offered and yeah. didn't and he didn't and he told him he doesn't need a ride he just needs equipment and whatnot uh, and you know and the fact that his family's still there as well mm. is a very big thing and i think you know that you speak to any ukrainian and they absolutely love that guy now and you know and they were saying like before this all started there was that political sort of up uh, um and an arm but you know that whole political structure has sort of just gone okay let's all work together they yeah don't, they don't have this whole like you know or oh, liberal conservatives let's just slander this person they're not going to build enough homes you spend money on this like it's just <laughs> it's done yeah you know and everyone's like let's just work together it doesn't matter what color my um my party is like what can we do to make sure that ukraine as mm-hmm. a whole is, is sort of being pushed forward so um you know i was very proud to, of what we did there um but again i still feel very um guilty for for leaving mm-hmm. uh, so it's almost like an unfinished job mm-hmm. in essence um on that side of things and you know i i toy with the idea of of you know resigning my position in in my organization and and like selling up my assets and stuff here and just going you know it's possibly you know, all the stuff I did in the military and all my time overseas and everything proud and everything I did, humanitarian, military or whatever, like, is nothing in comparison to, I think, the, the moral obligations mm-hmm. or the sense of righteousness of what, what happened or what we did there is the fact that, you know, 
that felt morally right to do. Whereas, you know, you look back at some of your military career and you're like, mm, yeah, maybe that wasn't the, maybe the, the end goal wasn't exactly <laughs> what we all thought we were doing type thing, you know. So I, I actually feel an immense sense of pride of what we did there mm-hmm. um, on that side of things. And, you know, I think the Ukrainians are incredibly proud um, of what we did as well to, to, to help them. And, and, you know, the general population here, you know, I, I see a lot of Ukrainian flags flying around town and stuff and, you know, outside City Hall, which I was amazed at. And I was very proud that, you know, and I sent that picture, um, I sent a picture of the uh, town hall clock tower and, and mm-hmm. the flags flying to to the um, to the guys back in Ukraine. And, and they were just over the moon that, you know, that was flying in our town, you know. They, in our they, small little town yeah, in the middle of Ontario. You know, and they had no concept. They were like, that's absolutely fantastic. You know, the, the pride of just something as simple as flying that flag gives them that sort of extra boost and, and sort of sort of vigorance. And they're so proud of what, what's happening here to try and support them as well, I think is, is phenomenal. So, you know, they did a very good um, little thank you video um, the other day and they posted it on, on Facebook and it, it brought a big tear to my eye because, you know, the, the thanks was sincere. It was genuine. It wasn't just a, here's a little thank you for mm-hmm. doing what you did. Like it was, it was sincere and you can, you know, at the end they do this little voice uh, to get all the main players together from like Legion D, the hospital, the medical personnel and, and, uh, and saying like, you know, and they, and you know, their English isn't great, but you know, they've tried their best in, in getting this message back across and it, it, you know, I was brought to tears by it. And, you know, most people that know me are like, I just really cry. He's a, he's a <laughs> bit of a soulless person, but you know, after seeing it, they were like, and you know, people at work and my organization and people back home are just like, Oh, that's phenomenal. Like that's actually, it's heartfelt what they've For done. Sure. I was like, yeah, you know, and you know, just a bunch of guys that got together and just went, let's go and do this right now. Let's not mess around. Let's just get it done. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know, we've saved a lot of lives doing it. And I like to think that we will continue to save lives with just the training and, and the minimal equipment we've given them. So, you know, imagine how many people could be saved with actual, you know, good re- donation resources and equipment. You know, it, it makes me feel proud that people are still trying to support us and hopefully we can get enough of our sort of support there to go back with, with extra stuff that they need to, to continue to save, um, save lives uh, on that side of thing. Definitely. So I thank everyone for so far that have supported us and, you know, anyone that wants to continue to support us or, or even someone new that wants to have a chat or discuss about where the resource is going and what we need, then yeah, please feel free to, reach out everything's mm-hmm. fully transparent like we got nothing to hide we're not a we're not an ngo we're not a non proper anything so anything that people give us is is fully transparent and they get a reply of everything that's done and physical proof of where that mm-hmm. where that stuff goes um you know because i feel that a lot of people actually want to see something tangible right they don't like oh just give 50 dollars to this okay cool where does that go oh, just give 50 dollars mm-hmm. it. it's it's for a good cause um, and you never really see anything at the end of it. Well, sort of what, what tangible things, but, you know, I can physically show people like a human side of where this stuff's going and For what sure. it's doing. So, um, but again, certainly not to take it away from some of the other organizations where we're not hammering them too much anymore. Uh, <laughs> in the early days, I could quite have to sit there and rage about the NGOs. Um, but, you know, now that they've managed to get themselves relatively sure. sorted, I, <laughs> we can have them. Perfect. Well, I think that is all the questions I have for today. Um, is there anything else you would like to say? Or I think we got everything? No, I think, uh, yeah, I think we're good on that. Front. Okay. Well, I won't take up any more of your time then. Thank you very much for coming in and chatting today. I think this was a really good conversation. Thank you. I'm looking forward to sharing this with uh, our audience and, and whoever wants to listen. Um, yeah. And with that, I guess we'll say goodbye today. Brilliant. Thank you very much. No problem. Thank you.